This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome. My name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School. And today we have Quasi Mitchell with us, who is principal and diversity inclusion lead at Deloitte Consulting. Welcome, Quasi. Thank you, Stephanie. It's a pleasure to be here. So, so happy to have you here today. And I think the topic that we're going to talk about today is certainly timely. It's always timely, I think, in organizations to talk about leading change. But I think as we're sitting in a, a, a vacuum of change-related um, opportunities, I will call it these days, I think we can certainly think about um, this massive, what we often refer to as a work-from-home experiment uh, related to the COVID pandemic. We certainly are living in a time where there is increased um, energy and, and attention to talking about issues of systemic and racial injustice. And it's not just something that is happening here in the United States. It's, there's been a call to action um, to talk about racial injustice around the world. And, and certainly uh, this summer, we've seen um, legislation that the Historic Civil Rights Act of 1964 has now been extended to cover uh, people with uh, transgender identity as well as um, different to cover sexual orientation as well. And so there's been massive number of, of huge change initiatives that certainly um, I think affect us as as humans uh, living in you know, this greater world, but I think also in the context of our work lives. And so before we start tackling those really, really big questions, um, I'd like to start with um, a, a smaller question. And I just would like for you to talk to us a little bit about uh, what it is that you do in your job at Deloitte. And, and certainly, can you think about a time, maybe it's recently, and this, this is probably a good opportunity to talk about something recently or in the past, where you've uh, led a change-related initiative. Yeah, and it's funny you talk, we're talking about change and, and, and change comes in so many different shapes and sizes, right? My, my wife and I are now in the process of working through a remodel of our condo, right? Small-scale change, but you toss that into a pandemic. You toss it into working from home. You toss that into all of the other items that you just noted. And, and even the smallest-scale change becomes something that, uh, can be all-consuming, and, and in addition, just really, really daunting, which I think is the challenge that many people have with respect to driving change in their organization. Um, my, my background and, and what I do, I, I like to say that I have one of the coolest jobs in the planet. Um, so my role uh, in, with Ford Deloitte Consulting, which is a 55,000-person organization, is to lead DEI and our and also our pro bono giving. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of internal focus of all of the core aspects of hiring, advancing, retaining, and and, and really developing, you know, our people based upon their the particular populations that we focus on. And then also our pro bono giving, which is outwardly focused, that is um, trying to drive change within society. So those two things in combination with the work that I do for our clients on a day-to-day -day basis, no day for me is exactly the same. Everything is entirely different. And it's also a fantastic time to be in these roles um, just to be able to not only think about change internally within Deloitte, but how we drive change across our broader industry and the people that we work with who have similar values. 
Um, so as I said, I, I show up on a daily basis completely excited. Now, when you think about um, change that I've driven recently, right now um, with my role, we have an increased focus on accountability and particularly setting the expectations for all of our partners, principals, and managing directors within the firm who are the people who by and large can commit the firm and are leaders within the firm. How do we make sure that they are gold and held accountable for demonstrating our values on DEI on a daily basis? And so that for us is a transformational journey that we're going on within the organization and and will fundamentally change the way that we do business in the future. Fantastic. And so what if you think about the the office you know it's it's hard to think about the office right now um except for your home office what have been some of the i would say the most um impactful changes that you've seen um recently as as we think about entering the workplace regularly and checking out of the workplace regularly yeah, and the office has a number of distinct, I would say, advantages and disadvantages with our shift to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say remote or virtual, but I, I do think that it is um, along those specific lines. I think the advantages is, and particularly for the efforts that I drive, more opportunities for historically our introverts and other people who in a live setting in a big meeting who would not be speaking up. And I've seen that transformation for those introverts where you have everyone now who's in these environments where we don't exactly know how to interact. So it's a fair playing field in many respects from the standpoint of getting their input and, and pulling people in. I've also seen the real disadvantage that it's had for our caregivers, mm -hmm. um, particularly those whom are caring for young children or loved ones who need additional support where they are not getting um, what they historically would have received from support from either daycare or some other caregiving service. And unfortunately, that, that really disadvantages our women who, as we all know, historically bear the brunt of a lot of caregiving services. So as I think about the environments that we're working in right now, the advantages of things as simple as getting, giving an introvert a voice to the disadvantage of how it may in fact set back um, many of our female caregivers um, in their past with respect to their careers as they're trying to balance um, both um, their family responsibilities and, and their work responsibilities. So I want to pick up on this idea of voice. Um, it's such a an important um, concept. I think definitely as we think about the day-to-day -day experiences of work, the idea that everyone wants to some extent uh, be heard and listened to and respected and to feel like their opinion and expertise matters. I think when we talk about this broader idea of leading change, voice becomes exceptionally important. And so if, if I were to give to you, you know, a scenario in which you're leading a change initiative, and we'll talk about specifically diversity-related change initiatives, how do you see voice, this idea of speaking up or and speaking out, both facilitating and potentially also inhibiting some of the change-related work that needs to be done in organizations today? It's 
It's an interesting question because there's so many dynamics that play out with respect to voice, right? Um, both advantageous and disadvantageous, right? Um, and if you think about the voice of, for example, white men, right? White men have the opportunity to use their voice to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, and, and by and large are not penalized by putting out different ideas that are seen as advocates and celebrated, right? So that's phenomenal. You also have white men, though, who are terrified or feeling ill-equipped um, to have the right dialogue and sit on the sideline, right? So you, you have the situation where you can, in fact, drive a dialogue, but because you feel like you don't know the right things to say, people abstain from driving that dialogue, which to me is, is problematic. The, the other thing that you see, and particularly if you think about the dynamics with respect to, for example, Black women, right? Um, having a voice is critical so that we understand the experience that they have and what we need to modify in, in order to advance things. But at the same point in time, I think studies would show that Black women are in, in fact frequently penalized for being the voice on diversity, equity, inclusion. So the, the key thing for me and what we've been trying to strive for is to set up opportunities where we have multiple people who feel equipped and who are driving that dialogue without it being disproportionately falling on one aspect of our, you know, broader makeup as a firm in comparison to others. And, and if you're in a situation where we are talking about, you know, diversity and the only people who are speaking up are, for example, um, are trans practitioners, well, without advocacy, that's the wrong way to approach this. And, and so it's really trying to find that middle ground of having everyone have a voice that is heard and, and respected, which is a challenge. Okay. So this certainly helps us to understand who um, has a voice, who doesn't have a voice, and, and who needs to have a voice in the context of change initiatives. I'm going to ask you a question that I've been asked a, a lot recently, um, and that's more about the how, right? So it's this idea that you know so many people I've talked to recently are in these smaller companies that may not have a talent management strategy, or they certainly don't have a diversity inclusion office, right? They might have right. one person who's a diversity inclusion manager, but maybe not right. a diversity inclusion strategy. And all these things matter, right? Because it tells you about the size and the scale uh, and the resources that have been devoted to this topic. So my question for you is, is how does a, a firm, I called it small, but it could be a large one. How does a firm begin to um, create a conversation about change um, that includes different voices in the, in, in, right. from the start? Right. And it's, I think, Stephanie, you and I have been having similar conversations with organizations of a variety of different sizes. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, a lot of it starts with understanding and, and, and really trying to not necessarily race to driving solutions, but understanding the, the perspective and, and the, the distinct voice that some of diverse practitioners or employees bring to an environment that might be small to mid-sized or large. Right. So I do think that the journey that people should be going on should start with that aspect of learning. And, and some things that are out there, like you've written a number of phenomenal things that people should, in fact, be reading to understand. 
and having broader dialogue on, you know, within an organization. The other thing, and, and one of the things that we've done as a firm is, is what we call inclusion councils, right. um, which are the evolution of the, you know, ERGs and, and really how we have focused on ERGs in, in the past. That, that being said, it's for our smaller offices, right, in distinct parts of the country where we might not have representation to the same degree as we would in Washington, D.C., where I'm based. Right. I think if organizations, and particularly when we think about our diverse communities within smaller to mid-sized organizations, take an approach such as that so that they have a common voice, although it's not a lost voice depending upon what are the core aspects that they or the unique needs of their community. I think that that's another great way to advance beyond the initial aspects of learning and elevate concerns collectively to leadership where you are not solely exposed because you are one of the few Black, um, Hispanic, or Latinx, you know, um, employees within the organization. That's so tricky, though, right? And again, as as I think you and I have very similar experiences recently, is uh, there's this double-edged sword to being one of the few people mm-hmm. of color right now in an organization, right? So simultaneously, not only are you having the experience Uh, if you're Black, that your community is the one that's being talked about, whether we're talking about um, the mortality rates and the the sickness rates associated with COVID-19, or whether we're talking about racial injustice. So not only is it you that is, is being discussed, you also might be one of the few people who has a lot of knowledge on the topic, perhaps because over the course of your career, you've been asked multiple times to sit on the diversity committee, right? So you've either learned it that way, or like you and myself, you actually have training um, in the subject matter. Um, so let's talk about the change agent. Uh, I want to actually, let's talk about the change agent as somebody who was also, um, for lack of a better word, potentially also the recipient, right? A beneficiary right. of that change. Can we talk, talk to me a little bit about the tensions that you think exist but also the opportunities that might exist for someone who is simultaneously uh, the expert, but also the person who is is reflected in the larger cause that's being um, conveyed. Yeah, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic, right? And and for me, it's it's always been funny. And and Stephanie, like you've heard, it's so frequently when you are the change agent that's part of the group that's advocating for change people are always hesitant to step forward, right? Mm-hmm. Like you you don't necessarily want to be the black employee who also leads all initiatives for our black employees. And then simultaneously as a member of management so that your other managing peers view you as benefiting from the, the initiatives that you're driving. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the key thing with being a change agent in situations such as that is like having a reputation for being fair mm-hmm. and impartial and putting the interests of the organization and our people first, right? We, we have this expression within Deloitte of being a partner's partner mm. and someone who is viewed as being um, incredibly fair with respect to balancing the needs of our people, the needs of their community, and kind of the advancement of the organization as a whole. So if anything, as people think about selecting people who will be agents of change, or if you are someone who is driving change within an organization, it's key to have that level of credibility and fairness. Otherwise, you will, in fact, be viewed 
as someone who might in fact be doing things to advance their own personal um, situation at the expense of, of uh, you know, even some of the challenging aspects of watching the murder of George Floyd and the transformation that our society is undergoing right now. And, and I'm sure you have heard this just like I have, where you see people who are stepping up and then where they're now trying to seize power or take advantage of this opportunity because they're not people who are seen as being fair in, right. in our parlance, a partner's partner. Yeah, it's such a tricky situation to be in, I would say, is uh, I tell people, I said, sometimes I want to just sit this one out, right, as I'm sure you might have that experience as well. Um, but I think for me, there's a responsibility that comes with expertise. Um, and so I think for you and, and for me, was while we, we look the part of, of what we keep seeing on 24-7 loop on TV, it's you actually do have the substantial sub subject matter expertise that your firm needs, right? And, and so what, what would it be if you decided to not contribute um, and just sort of pass it off to everyone to, to swim on their own? I mean, you could do that, but I think, you know, I think what I tell myself, if there's ever a time to step up, it's now, right? I, I'm not sure what your it, thoughts on that are. I, I completely agree. It, I'm, I'm smiling because, um, my my boss and good friend, the, the CEO for Deloitte Consulting, Dan Helfridge, has had the conversation with me on a couple of times that there's a certain aspect of being the right person in the right time when dealing with major transitions of this nature. Um, do I do I think that like it's the the movement that we're undergoing right now is a pivotal opportunity for us to change corporate America? Absolutely, and, and ultimately society writ large. Am I saddened that it did not happen after the murder of Trayvon Martin? I am. Yeah. And so for me, as you said, like it's, it's not always that we are racing to be at the forefront of some of these items, but I do not want to sit back and look five to 10 years from now and say, we missed out on changing society after Trayvon Martin. We missed out on changing society um, after the murder of George Floyd. And now I think this is the time that we all need to lean in, whether we want to be here or not. Absolutely. So there's certainly a, there's several groups of employees in organizations that perhaps um, may need a little bit more information um, in order to begin to get on board with a lot of the change initiatives that you might lead related to diversity. You've already spoken of uh, white men as being a group of people who often needs uh, more data to understand um, what is being created and who is being affected and um, is the problem really that bad. Um, I want to talk about another group. We often just refer to them as middle managers. Um, and certainly over the decade and a half that I've been doing research on corporate diversity inclusion practices, it seems to be a, a constant theme that, yes, it's really important and it's really challenging to get CEO and chair level support of corporate diversity inclusion initiatives. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get the CEO to, to really feel like this is something that they want to um, drive and put resources behind in their company. It's another um, set of opportunities to 
drive change down into the organization to the level of middle managers. And so when I'm talking about middle managers, I'm thinking about literally the people who do not have the highest level of authority in the organization, but they hear directly from the people on the quote unquote front lines about their experiences and what they want to see happen in the organization. So uh, with that said, let's talk a little bit about middle managers as change agents. How do we create them, right? So what tools, what resources, what information do you think um, is needed in order to effectively garner the support and the energy of middle managers in DEI-related change initiatives and organizations today? Yeah, a few things. One, with respect to your question, I have found that getting senior-level leadership on board for DEI initiatives, if you were clear and measured outcomes, has not been problematic. Okay, great. I feel like what typically happens within organizations is that we start activity around DEI without thinking about the clear outcomes that we're trying to drive and how we measure those outcomes. So you lose support, you know, over time because you sit back and you're like, well, we spent a million dollars last year. And you're telling me that we've only improved representation within our ranks by 0.25%, right? And so business people being business people, it then begets like, are we focused on the right things and should we pivot? So I think as people are thinking about this dialogue, measuring outcomes is critical for driving change. In in terms of mid-level management, it's I my my first job after graduate school, I, I had this amazing boss who had this expression, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was effectively middle management is the death or can be the death of all great strategic initiatives. Mm-hmm. And particularly from the standpoint of not giving them the tools in order to kind of drive change for your question. And I've always found that it's one, you do need to be incredibly prescriptive on expectations, what we're measuring, and really giving them the tools to be able to drive forward and, 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 and focus on change, right? Telling mid-level managers that you need to establish a sponsorship program and sponsor employees without defining sponsorship, without laying out the tenets of what that particular um, program should look like. And then lastly, with being prescriptive on the mechanics in order to set everything up so that it's as easy as like, okay, we can start moving forward with this, I think is really key. And so as, as much as people want to be creative and part of the solution, and many times, even within middle management and the, the people that they're talking to on the front lines, I do think that there's an aspect of needing to be incredibly prescriptive uh, on expectations and actions that need to take place, and then ultimately having them understand what the outcomes and how they're going to be assessed based upon either positive or negative outcomes. And do not underestimate being prescriptive. Do not, do not, do not. And that's one thing that has become abundantly clear to me over the last two years. So let's sort of narrow this to a the issue, one of the issues of the day, right? So we've been talking about racial justice um, and racial equity. Um, and now we have middle managers who are sitting in their firms that are creating these really great aspirational plans to end systemic racism. Um, right. What is a middle manager to do and to, to think in this particular situation? What would you recommend um, to middle managers listening um, 
what's their place in this conversation? Yeah, they're key to the transformation, right? And and in many respects, the, the thing that I would say to mid-level managers is that it's the things that they do on a day-to-day basis that are really going to help us either succeed or have us lose, you know, um, any traction and taking advantage of this moment in time. And, and what I would say is a couple things that are really straightforward and tactical. One is what does your network look like, mm-hmm. right? And, and each opportunity that you have to expand that network, is it the people that you're comfortable with or is it conversely someone that you want to provide an opportunity to? And, and I would extend that to each and every time that you're providing somebody with a growth opportunity or a highly visible opportunity to advance their career are you going to that same series of people that you always have, or have you looked a little bit further to see whom you would want to give a new opportunity to? The other thing that's top of mind for me is the way that we work. Um, And particularly middle managers and the tone that they set on their teams, like are they conducive towards the advancement of women, (laughs) right? If, If we're in fact working in an environment where, as we were talking about earlier, the impact on caregivers, Are we effectively working as if nothing has shifted, that COVID has had no impact on our lives, and that, in fact, is going to either alienate or stress people out to such a degree that we will lose many aspects of our diverse talent? And then the last thing I would say, more so than anything else, is as we think about the the context of inclusive leadership and how to become an inclusive leader, What's the tone that we're setting for the people on our team on expectations on demonstrating our commitment to DEI? And, and I, I think that that's key for middle managers because people generally stratify or stratify, excuse me, what they hear from the CEO, what they see on a daily basis, and what they're living. And more often than not, you know, they have this message from the CEO. They don't experience that on a daily basis, and people lose trust. And, and I think it's key for mid-level managers to understand that they're the linchpin to having the trust of our people and setting that tone of giving people a voice and, and caring for their specific need for advancing is going to be key for us to having success at this particular point in time. So we've certainly talked about the top, right, and the middle. And, and I think one of the tensions that I often hear when we talk about change initiatives and diversity Uh, related initiatives is um, when is it necessary for change to be sort of top-down, managerial, some would say bureaucratic, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and when is grassroots support um, really an engine of the work that is done? And so let's talk about, you know, I always like to think about um, students who Maybe it's their first or their second job. You know, some of your entry-level <laughs> associates mm-hmm. and consultants. I'm sure you, you're, you're laughing because I'm sure you've had a lot of very eager um, professionals say to you, what can I do? How do I get involved? Um, and so what is it that you tell um, people who are maybe newer, who have a lot of passion and energy around D, E, and I, but that's not their primary uh, that's not their titled job, and they just want to support. They've grown up um, with um, values around diversity. They might feel very incensed at 
by the murder of George Floyd um, and Breonna Taylor, and they just want to go crazy. How do they get involved? What's what? What do you think they can do um, at their stage in their career? It's I, I'm smiling because I, I hear I hear a lot from everybody in my role, and in particular, you know, um, the passion that comes from our junior practitioners who are early into their tenure in in a working environment. And the first thing I would tell them is like, seek to understand, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's definitive reasons why we do things the way that we do. And that doesn't mean that they're right or wrong, but like build an understanding of those items first, and then come to me with creative solutions that you can drive an impact change within your sphere of influence and privilege on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So Hearing from a, you know, first or second year employee, you know what, Quasi, in your role, you should do X, Y, and Z, and you should make everybody in the organization make that happen. And my response is like, that would be great, right? Um, I hear you. But really, the thing I want you to operate on is your own position of privilege and, the, and your own situation that you can change on a daily basis and bring me those ideas so that we can move forward with them pretty aggressively. And so what's been phenomenal is hearing people respond to that and having, for example, our campus recruiting team saying like, hey, we have an idea for how we can increase like the diversity of the hires at my university. And we're going to establish this mentorship and peering program such that we are being like recruiting diverse candidates from the time they enter into the um, campus. And whether they go into consulting, but they at least have additional guidance on how to enter into professional services writ large, that's how we're going to change the world based upon our sphere of influence, which is really, really key. And, and what I have people focus on, in addition to thinking through how we can change things within the firm. I love this term, sphere of influence, because it certainly um, helps, I think, to make much more concrete and much more tangible the, your, your local environment and what's within your personal capacity to be helpful to a situation. Um, and I think what it also helps to do is it helps to break down large scale uh, change initiatives into something that feels manageable. As you know, oftentimes right. these things don't pan out the way that we would like them to is because we've got a big, huge idea but it's really hard to figure out how we're going to execute upon that idea. So when you think about your sphere of influence, it becomes, okay, so here's what I am doing today, right now with this group of individuals. What can I do in this current context to support this big idea that my firm has? Would you think? Exactly. And, and I generally tell people, as you think about that, like some people's sphere of influence is five people. You know, like some of our great leaders, it's tens of thousands, if not millions of people. And right, wherever you operate within that spectrum, you still bear the responsibility of improving the livelihood, the perspectives, the inclusivity of that sphere of influence and do that, right? Don't, it's important to think about and contribute to the larger problems, but breaking it down so that it's local and direct and things that you can do on a day-to-day -day basis to improve the situation of others around you. So my final question, um, coming back to where we started with this idea that there have been some massive um, change initiatives occurring in, in our broader society, certainly working from home, that is a, a definite change for, for many of us. 
um, the heightened focus on ending systemic racism in society and not just the U.S. This is certainly something that has gained traction in companies that never, or excuse me, in countries that never wanted to talk about uh, racism before. Um, and certainly the extended federal rights protection to LGBTQ employees in the U.S., banning discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity in, in all aspects of life and, you know, for the purposes of our conversation today, the workplace. Um, so it's still early, but I, I'm certain that there are some lessons that um, we can learn um, from where we've been over, uh, over this past summer. But if you were to apply um, some of the principles that you think about leading change, leading change as uh, an expert change agent to any of these current big societal initiatives, what would you say are sort of some applicable strategies or practices that as people were thinking about these really big issues that I've named, that if we just lean on some of our uh, change initiative 101 toolkit, what can we use to, to apply to some of these issues? What lessons would you think um, could be helpful? Yeah, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, and and I feel like everyone who's operating in the DEI space right now, um, a year from now, should sit back and reflect on the two to three things that we fundamentally learned that we need to share with each other. Um, and and for me, it, it boils down to a couple of things. One is, you know, don't don't immediately pivot to action, mm -hmm. right? Because because I feel like first reaction and first action is not always what you need because there's this, there's this inherent thing that happens with respect to the way that organizations work around DEI where it's, you studied an issue and it became that's the primary thing that we always need to focus on. And granted, we haven't done any additional analysis over the last two years to make sure that it's still the issue. But if we keep going back to that, that does not mean in, in driving action around it, it does not mean that you're going to alleviate the issue. So number one is like, do not immediately default to action. Number two is do not underestimate communication, right? In rapid communication, that even if it's like, hey, we're thinking, we're processing, we're working, and here we're going to take you on the journey. Because when in the absence of that communication, the narrative will be made for you. And the narrative is always negative. Right. There is I've never seen a situation where someone's made up a positive nar narrative in the absence of any information at all. And then the and then the last thing I would say more so than anything else is that programming is great. Driving experience is better. Right. And and by that, we we generally try so frequently to create, you know, learning programs, development programs to solve an issue when we really don't think about solving and driving the experience that people are having on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and ultimately, if we get to the point where we're focused on the experience of that junior black practitioner, thinking about why they might choose to stay or not stay, rather than you know randomly designating that we're gonna do a mentoring program, whether they ask for it or not, because we felt like we were called to do some type of action to show that we care about the issue, is, is really what's going to make or break how things stick within organizations. So those are the three that are top of mind for me. Okay. So final words. I always like to think about this as the 
Dang, energized, motivated, and engaged seems to be, I think, one of the hardest things for people. I, I think about how many diversity, equity, and inclusion leaders shift organizations every two years. It's almost like serial entrepreneurs, right, where it's the startup phase is really fun and exciting, but the sustaining it. Um, so advice maybe advice that you use for yourself or to other people who are really trying to um, be part of the change and, and be part of the change over the long term? How do they, how do they keep with it? This is not a linear path, yeah. right? And, and I think that we need to think of it more as a spiral staircase rather than a linear path that's going to have us make some bold change within two years. It's going to transform an organization. Like it's going to be a, a mixture of bold chains, a mixture of tactical steps that are going to lead us up to the spiral staircase. And just remember that we are, in fact, going up, right? And I think that that's the key um, in, in remaining hopeful. Love it. Well, Kwesi, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure hearing about the incredible work that you're doing, these fantastic lessons around leading change, um, the, the different players and some real tactical approaches to, to I think, thinking about, I'll, I'll continue to remember our sphere of influence and, and how to uh, engage that um, as we try to, you know, make our organizations work better for us all. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure, Stephanie. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.